came across a story about a man who was really, really sick. In fact, he was, uh, finally got so sick that he uh, reluctantly, as many men do, reluctantly decided to finally go see a doctor. So he went to the doctor, doctor checked him over and said to him, he said, you are in terrible shape. You've got to do something about this. First, I want you to tell your wife to cook more nutritious meals. Next, stop working like a dog all the time. Also, inform your wife that you're going to make a budget and that she has to stick to it. Finally, have her keep the kids off your back so that you can relax some. Unless there are some changes in your life like these, you're probably going to be dead in a month. And so the man turned to the doctor. He said, Doc, this would sound much more official coming from you. Would you please call my wife and give her these instructions? Well, when the sick fellow got home, his wife rushed to him. She said, I've talked to your doctor. Poor man. You've only got 30 days to live. Sometimes you have to kind of think through what all happens there. Apparently, not everybody embraces change. In fact, if we're honest, all of us resist change at times. It just depends on what the change is and how it affects us personally. One of the places where we find change to be most difficult to embrace is within the church. Often we're more comfortable living with old problems than with enacting new solutions. John Maxwell, who uh, has written much about leadership, particularly for church uh, settings, Maxwell tells the story of a congregation that desperately needed a new church building. But they were afraid to venture out into that uh, whole process However, one Sunday morning during the worship service, a piece of plaster fell from the ceiling and hit the chairman of the board. In short order, a meeting was convened, and the following four decisions were made. Number one, we will build a new church. Number two, we will build a new church on the same site as the old one. Number three, we will use materials from the old church to build the new one. And then number four, we will worship in the old church until the new church is built. <laughs> Again, you have to think about that one a moment. Coping with change in the church is not always easy. Even when the need for change is obvious. We all like the familiar and the comfortable and so we resist change at times. And truth be told, occasionally change ought to be resisted, especially if the change that is being pushed is unbiblical, if it doesn't match with the clear teaching of God's word. I think about churches that sadly at one time were quite faithful, but over the years, over the 
decades have decided that God's word is a nice guide, but it really isn't all that authoritative. We can kind of pick and choose what we want to believe, what we want to go by. That's a dangerous position to hold to. And yet there are many churches that hold to that very perspective on the word of God. And whenever that is pushed in a church setting, it ought to be resisted. I think about churches that have moved morally in a direction that embraces the culture rather than the truth of God's word. Churches that have gone so far as in recent days to endorse same-sex marriage when God's word clearly teaches otherwise. Change sometimes should be resisted when it is unbiblical. But often, change is needed and it is necessary. And we find many times in those situations that God is there working behind the scenes pressing us to change, to come into conformity with his will and his word. And so here's the point I want you to get this morning in this message as we talk about coping with change in the church. That in order to accomplish his purposes for his glory, God often initiates changes, sometimes uncomfortable changes which stretch our faith and test our obedience. Let me say that again. In order to accomplish his purposes for his glory, God often initiates changes, some of which at times can be uncomfortable, changes which stretch our faith and test our obedience. This morning, we're going to look at Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. We're going to see how the church in Jerusalem coped with change. And I think that what happened there in the church in Jerusalem in Acts 11 is instructive for us today in our understanding of how to cope with change in the church. So if you have your Bible, turn to uh, Acts chapter 11. And we'll read the first 18 verses. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. 
And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Coping with change in the church. In the first three verses of this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 11, we see what is a common response when change is introduced, especially change that kind of upsets the apple cart, change that is difficult to, uh, to accept because it goes so much against where we have been. And the common response when change like that comes is that change is attacked. And that's exactly what happens here in the church of Jerusalem. News of a great change that is coming comes up from Joppa to Jerusalem. Or really from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And it's the news of the reception of the word of God by the Gentiles. Now this shouldn't have come as any great shock to the people there in the church in Jerusalem. But for some, it was the world being turned upside down. Remember at the very beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, Jesus tells his apostles, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. Well, who's going to be at the ends of the earth? It will be Gentiles, will it not? It will be the people of the nations, people whom God has made it known from well back in history. I want all men to come to me. A promise that God had made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. says, Abraham, I intend through you to be a blessing to all the people of the earth. And so God's heart for the world, God's heart for the nation was, should have been no surprise And yet when this news of the the Gentiles receiving the word of God, when it comes, it's a shock to some within the church. As Luke has been recording the, the birth and the growth of the church in the book of Acts, just prior to what we read here in chapter 11, we find, well, first what he said there in chapter one, the words of Jesus, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then you come to Acts chapter 8 and you have the story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And then that's followed in chapter 9 by Saul or Paul's conversion 
one who had been a persecutor of the church, and how the Lord appeared to him and said, I am sending you to the Gentiles. And then you come to chapter 10, which is connected to the story here in chapter 11, which gives more details about Peter's vision and his going to the household of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and preaching the gospel there and the conversion of the household of Cornelius. So God is not just cracking the door open for the Gentiles to come in, but God is kicking open the door for the entrance of the Gentiles into the church, a door that had been kind of held shut by the Jewish Christians. They'd been reluctant to take that message to the Gentiles, but now God is initiating the change because that was God's will. God intended for the message of the gospel to go to all the world, to all the nations, to all people. And so it comes, the word of the conversion of Gentiles comes back to the church in Jerusalem and to the brothers in Judea. This word of the fact that hearts were being converted, that there were many who were repenting and believing the message of the gospel, that they had been saved by faith in Christ as Savior and Lord And that report was then widespread among the apostles, the brothers, the Jewish believers throughout Judea. And you come to the end of verse 1, and it just kind of rests there for a moment. And the indication there is that among the apostles and among many of the believers there in Judea, that's okay. We can accept that. But whenever great change comes, there are always critics who appear, right? And that's what you find then in verse 2, that there are those who are critical of this change that was coming to the church. Peter returns to Jerusalem. He goes up to Jerusalem. Even though Caesarea was north, Jerusalem was south, it says he goes up to Jerusalem because, well, geographically, topographically, it was higher than Caesarea, which was on the coast. Jerusalem sits up on hills, so he goes up to Jerusalem. Just in case you're wondering, I'll throw that out for you there. He goes up to Jerusalem. And this comes after he has spent, we're told at the end of chapter 10, after he has spent some days there in Caesarea with Cornelius and his household. Among these new Gentile believers, We're not told exactly what happened during those days that Peter spent there in Caesarea, but what do you suppose happened? Don't you imagine there was time of instruction from an apostle of Christ? Probably much time of instruction and time of fellowship together with these new brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can imagine that in the course of some days there in Caesarea that they probably shared some meals together. I don't think that Peter fasted the whole time he was there. And so Peter comes back home, comes back to Jerusalem, and he is immediately criticized by members of the circumcision party. I have this picture that they when the word had filtered back to Jerusalem about the conversion of the Gentiles, 
I have this notion that they kind of had lookouts waiting for Peter to come back. And when they got news that he was on his way, I just had this picture that they were kind of camped on his doorstep. And before he could even put down his suitcases, they stop him and they say, hey, we've heard this. You, while you were gone, you hung out with uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Well, these members of the circumcision party were a segment of believers, probably from among the Pharisees who had come to faith in Christ. We're told in Acts chapter 15, verse 5, that uh, there were some, a vocal minority within the church who were from the Pharisees who held strongly to this position of uh, maintaining a separateness from the Gentiles. These uh, believers were those who were particularly zealous for the law of Moses, and they insisted on no social interaction between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. They insisted that Gentiles who wanted to become Christians must first convert to Judaism, which included the males be circumcised, and that all those who would want to be Christians in coming to Judaism must adhere to the ritual laws of Moses. In other words, become like us. And then you can become a Christian. What they're really saying in all this, and the Apostle Paul, with great wisdom and insight, understood what was really at stake here. This was not just a matter of opinion not just a matter of certain freedom, but what they were doing was that they were adding to the gospel. What they were saying that is that you're not saved by Christ alone, but by Christ plus Judaism. And this was a big problem. And it didn't just go away overnight. In fact, Paul has to address this in his letter to the Galatians. I want you to read... In Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6, as Paul addresses this whole issue and why this is important, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that is, makes it a requirement, a condition of salvation, that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul rightly understood this issue to be a matter of the gospel and what entails salvation. And so this small but vocal group, and that's usually where critics come from. They're usually a small but vocal group 
These people were persuasive because of their persistence and, and their passion for what they felt. And for them, the issue regarding change was this. And again, I can just, I imagine in my mind's eye that as they greet Peter when he comes back home, that one of them, the spokesman, stands in front of Peter and puts his finger in Peter's chest and he says, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And we hear that and we think, so, big deal. It was a big deal. You're talking about a change in things that had been established for centuries. Partly based on some instruction from God's word about uh, food that was clean and unclean, but really more based on tradition about who you can associate with and who you can't and how you draw those lines of separation. When they said that, you ate with uncircumcised men. What they're communicating there is a sense of superiority for their position and a measure of holiness because they have maintained a separateness from these unclean Gentiles. It's interesting to note what doesn't appear in their words. There is a glaring absence of joy over the salvation of Gentiles. All that you hear from them is a great concern for Peter having violated rules of ritual cleanliness that in the end were a product of human tradition and and not a result of the clear teaching of God's word. When change comes, oftentimes that change is attacked. And that's what you see here. A couple of things that I think we can learn from this particular point. One is, be careful regarding traditions in the church. Traditions are very often tied to emotions, to feelings. Truth is generally connected with reason. Because traditions tend to be so tied to our emotions, to our feelings, when push comes to shove many times, tradition triumphs over truth because we have become, we are a people who are inclined to go with our feelings far too often. And so when our feelings are being tugged upon, we tend to go with that more than what the truth really is. Tradition resists change because many times tradition is tied to our feelings of of nostalgia for the good old days, the way things used to be. There's an old joke that says, how many people does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is four. One to change the bulb and three to reminisce about how good the old one was. 
Isn't that true? How many of us know people who uh, continually find themselves reminiscing about the past and living in the past? And it's not that we shouldn't be grateful for those things in the past, but it's easy to become tied unnecessarily to things of the past. One of the things that I would challenge you all with to be mindful of is that the longer Redeemer Church exists, the more of of an issue tradition can become. Right now, Redeemer Church has been around, uh, you know, five, six, seven years. Pretty young and filled with young families. And when you're young, it's a lot easier to uh, adapt to change and embrace change, generally speaking. But as time goes by and as patterns become kind of established in the life of the church, it will become a great temptation to want to be tied to those patterns. And so if the order of service gets changed, you might leave there saying, I can't believe that they took that time of prayer out or they moved scripture reading from here to there or we only sang this many songs and not that many songs or the sermon came at this point rather than at that point. And instead of being fed through the course of the service, your mind has been more tied up with how things were different. Maybe you do things differently in the children's ministry. Or there could be any number of things that could be done differently and changed. It is easy to become tied to tradition. Don't let that happen. The other thing that I would say to you here is not only be careful with tradition and become a a critic of change, but specifically out of this situation, beware of drawing lines of separation from others. And we do that either consciously or unconsciously. Sometimes we very knowingly don't associate with certain people, even within the church. Sometimes we, we haven't really noticed it, but we do. It is very possible to be willing to believe that someone can be a part of the church generally, but we might be unwilling to associate with them in our church. We must not only accept people as Christians, but we must receive them as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm convicted and challenged by one preacher's statement who said, God is most glorified when a local church is made up of culturally and racially diverse people who would never get together apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That was one of the things that caused the early church to stand out in their culture was that Jews and Gentiles did come together. They did worship together. They did love one another. 
May that be so in Redeemer Church and in every church that names the name of Jesus. Well, when change comes, the the default setting many times is for us to attack that change. It uh, pushes us in a direction we're not really familiar with or comfortable with. But I want you to notice here how Peter addresses the change within the church. Verses 4 through 17. And really what Peter's doing, he's just recounting what Luke has already covered back in chapter 10. And so this is kind of an abbreviated retelling of all that happened there with Peter and Cornelius and the conversion of these Gentiles in Cornelius' household. I want you to notice what, uh, what it says there in verse 4. After they said, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them, verse 4 says, but Peter began and explained it to them in order. Peter gives an orderly account of what happened. Peter's response is kind of amazing considering it's Peter. I mean, what do you know about Peter? What kind of a guy was he? Was he not a little prone to have a short fuse at times? But here you don't see that. Rather than becoming angry or defensive or emotional over this, Peter seeks to present the facts about what happened, how it happened, and why it happened. And so I'm not going to go through all the details. You can read it all there. But here was Peter's emphasis in his defense, in his explanation of what had taken place there at the household of Cornelius. Repeatedly, Peter points to God's initiative in this change that is coming to the church. Peter clearly implies that it was God who sent the vision to him about this sheet that was being let down from heaven with all the animals in it. It wasn't just a daydream. It wasn't just that he had fallen asleep and he had eaten some bad pizza that upset his stomach or something and caused him to have this dream. No, it was God who sent the vision. It was God who declared the foods to be clean. It was the Holy Spirit who told him to go with the men from Caesarea. Peter goes on to say it was an angel who appeared to Cornelius and directed him to send for Peter to come there. And Peter says, as I was declaring to them the gospel, what happened? The Holy Spirit fell on them. And then Peter concludes that by saying, this was a fulfillment of what Jesus himself had said. Peter was pretty wise in how he approached this. He said, this is from God. God is the one who initiated these changes. And in fact, as we had said, this, is, this was God's plan all along, was it not? For the message of the gospel to go, go into all the world. Jesus himself had declared it. To go to all the nations, all the peoples. 
And so God had taken the initiative. And so after giving his orderly account of what had happened, of how God had been at work, how God had taken the initiative, how God had been the one who had pressed Peter to go, and how Peter, though it stretched his faith and tested his obedience, he went at God's prodding and prompting. And when everything was said and done, when all had happened and this great conversion had come, Peter gives this honest assessment in verse 17. He said, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Someone has said that some people change when they see the light. Others change only when they feel the heat. Well, Peter had felt the heat, but he had also seen the light. And he wanted others to see the light as well. He hoped that those who were listening to his defense would come to the same conclusion that he had come to. Who are we to stand in God's way? That, that makes me reflect on something. What does it take for me to change? What does it take for you to change? Do you respond to the light of God's word? Or does God have to hold your feet to the fire? How much better if we would just take God at his word and act according to it? But truth be told, sometimes God has to turn up the heat, doesn't he? Sometimes God initiates the change. And then we are faced with a decision. Will we act on that, even though it stretches our faith? Will we obey, though it is a great test? Peter in an orderly way, addressed what God had done. He addressed the change. And we come to the end of the story in verse 18. Well, it's really not the end of the story. It's the end of that particular chapter of the story where the change is accepted finally. Peter says, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They fell silent. What is that but the silence of conviction? I'm reminded of Job's response. You remember all that happened to Job back in the Old Testament, all the things that fell upon him and that he suffered. And in the course of of all that, there are some instances where Job says, I, I, I know that God is good and merciful, but I am just not getting it. And I don't think it's right. I don't think it's fair. I don't think God should allow all this to happen. And then God begins to respond to Job's criticisms. And he goes through this whole string of questions 
Can you, did you, would you? And Job chapter 40, verse 4, Job says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. The silence of conviction. And that's what happened here. It was impossible for these critics to resist the logic and the spirit of Peter's defense. And I give them great credit for their response. Now, they didn't come back and say, yeah, but, or what about, or why couldn't. They said nothing. And that reveals, at least in this moment, a humble and teachable heart on their part. A willingness to receive what Peter had to say. A willingness to obey what God was clearly doing in their midst. But that silence of conviction as they kind of work through in their own hearts what Peter had just said, that is quickly replaced by the sound of celebration. For as they reflect a little more and a little more deeply, it says there in verse 18, and they glorified God, saying... They glorified God. They glorified God by giving him praise for his work in the salvation of the Gentiles. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Not only glorified God by giving him praise in their words, but they glorified God by submitting themselves to God's authority and to his will. I think perhaps they may have thought of this verse from Psalm 118. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Coping with change in the church is many times not an easy thing. But I come back to the point that I wanted you to get at the very beginning of this message. In order to accomplish his purposes for his glory, God often initiates changes, sometimes uncomfortable changes, which stretch our faith and test our obedience. Changes will come in your life. More specifically, changes will come to Redeemer Church. Some changes have already come, and changes will continue to come. Students will graduate, couples will get married, people will be transferred, meeting places may change. The order of service may vary. Changes will come. But it seems to me that in the end, it is the unchangeableness of God that makes change here possible and bearable and even welcome. 
Because God is immutable. That's the big fancy word for his unchangeableness. Because God is immutable, we can learn to accept and embrace change. Think about this for a moment. God is unchanging, first of all, in his person, in his very being, in his eternality. In Psalm 102, I love these verses that describe the person of God. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same. Your years have no end. And look at then at verse 28. Because all that is true, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. God is unchanging in his person. In that we can rest and have hope. God is unchanging in his perfections. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi is talking about the people's unfaithfulness in many ways. But he contrasts their unfaithfulness with God's faithfulness. That he doesn't change in his perfections, in his core attributes that he, he is always holy, always faithful, always righteous, always just. And God declares himself in Malachi 3 verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. I can't tell you how many times that verse has been a comfort to me in the ups and downs of my life and in the changing circumstances around me, even within the church, that I can look back on that verse and know that God does not change in who he is, in his very nature. James reflects on that very same notion in James chapter 1, verse 17, where he says that the Father of lights is one in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is unchanging in his perfections. God is unchanging, thirdly, in his purposes. God doesn't decide to do one thing one day and then throw that out and do something else the next day. Change the whole course. Now, we might do that, but God does not. Psalm 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart to all generations. As we walk through times of change, know that God is unchanging in his purposes. Whatever may change in some surface, superficial way, may we always be faithful to God's purposes in what we do as his people. 
And lastly, God is unchanging in his promises. He's unchanging in his purpose, in his person, in his perfections, and he is unchanging in his promises. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God keeps his word. And so God is constantly calling upon us as a saved yet sinful people to change, to be transformed and conformed to the likeness of Christ. The church in Jerusalem accepted the change regarding the Gentiles, at least for the moment. It didn't take long, though, for that same situation to rear its ugly head again. It's a situation that Paul faced in the church in Galatia. And in addressing that with the Galatians, Paul noted an example from Peter's life, how when Peter came to Antioch, the first great huge Gentile church, when Peter came there for a visit, there were some among the Judaizers, those of the circumcision party, who led Peter astray, and he kind of joined in with them and pulling away from these Gentile believers of not associating with them. And Paul says, I confronted him because not only was Peter doing this, but he was leading other people astray, even Barnabas. And I confronted him to his face about the wrongness of what he was doing. Comes up again in Acts chapter 15. And this time the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem meet and discuss this And they finally, once and for all, say, this is what the Gentiles need to do. Believe in Jesus. Refrain from foods that have been sacrificed to idols. Keep it simple. To think that Once we've dealt with change, it's kind of a one-and-done thing. We're naive to think that. Our feelings, our emotions will rise and want to pull us in all kinds of directions. So just know that uh, dealing with change is an ongoing process. But coping with and accepting change in the church begins with cooperating with God and changing me. Let me say that again. Coping with and accepting change in the church begins with cooperating with God in changing me. The late Howard Hendricks, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, gave some wise words when he said this. He said, write down on a piece of paper your answer to this question. How have you changed lately? Can you be very specific? Or must your answer be incredibly vague? You say, oh, well, 
yeah, I've grown, I've changed. And he says, okay, in what ways? Tell me. And then he says, the more you change, the more you become an instrument of change in the lives of others. And understand, he's not talking about change just for the sake of change. He's talking about change that brings us into conformity with God's word. The only way you will truly change is when God works to change you by his grace in the heart. Change begins by coming to Jesus. Change is at the core of the gospel, is it not? What happens in regeneration? Is that not when God removes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, a heart that desires him and loves him and wants to glorify him? What a change that God works. Salvation is change. Where we go from being lost to found, from being in darkness to light, from death to life. Sanctification is all about change. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and he says that in the process of God growing us up in Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And that process will go on until when? Glorification. And when that happens, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, whether we have died or whether we are alive, when Christ comes back, we may not all sleep, but we will all be what? Changed. Change is at the core of the gospel. And so we ought not to be surprised when God calls us to change at times in the church, to be in conformity with his will for what the church is to be for what we as his people individually are called to be. And so my prayer for all of us today is this, that we might be a changed people who are always changing to the glory of God. May it be so. Would you pray with me?